Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist. I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. And today's podcast is somewhat controversial, I think. So I had a lot of patients and families who did reach out to me and asking me to address the topic of integrative medicine, complementary medicine, alternative medicine, and naturopathic medicine. Many of my listeners wanted to know more about that particular area. And I felt it is important to bring an expert in that particular field to discuss a controversial topic that uh, continues to be very tense whenever we discuss it with medical oncology and with academic physicians. For many reasons, I would say the top reason is that there is no data, uh, no peer-reviewed randomized controlled trial level data that really assures certain complementary medicine interventions could help. And whenever you don't have such data, these complementary approaches could actually hurt. Remember, patients with cancer are usually undergoing some form of treatment, could be chemotherapy, hormonal therapy, immunotherapy, and we don't know how these complementary approaches do indeed interact with these traditional treatments. And some side effects, toxicities, adverse events could occur. Because of this, I've asked Dr. Nesha Winters, she is a naturopathic doctor, to join me on the show. Dr. Nesha Winters has a large platform. You can check out her website. She has lectured, she has uh, taught uh, students, and she has actually, she told me that she taught some medical oncology as well about her approaches to integrative oncology and complementary medicine. I wanted to understand from Dr. Nisha Winters, what in the world is naturopathic medicine? I think it's important to know and and really try to understand what do people out there uh, think of that. So I've asked her to come on the show and she generously accepted And I'm going to ask you to come again on a panel to discuss the controversy where we do pro versus con. As you know, I love that. I love the debates on Healthcare Unfiltered. So without further ado, Dr. Nisha Winters on Healthcare Unfiltered. And before I air the episode, don't forget, subscribe, rate, review, visit my website, chadinaban.com. Check out the YouTube channel, Chadinaban and Healthcare Unfiltered. And please subscribe to the show, write a brief review, refer your friend or a colleague to the show. And here we are, all things naturopathic medicine. Nisha, welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. This is your first time on this show, which is, um, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know it's probably uh, not, uh, never easy to face the type of questions about uh, what what we're gonna talk about. But before we delve into the issue at hand, uh, maybe a little bit about you as uh, to who you are, where you live, and, and, and tell us a little bit more, the person behind the profession. Sure. No, thank you so, so much. And I've really, once I learned about you, I kind of went on a little bit of a cyber stock myself and really, really enjoyed the type of audience you draw in that you interview. I really appreciate that you like to ask the hard questions and that you're very curious by nature. And so that is the perfect, whether people 
I don't know, like whether this is an uncomfortable topic or what for anybody, I think it's important to ask these questions and to have curiosity and come into it with an open mind. And I believe that that's what you offer in this podcast. So thank you for the opportunity to have this conversation. And so a little bit about me, I am golly, as of October, 2021, I am 30 years out from a terminal ovarian cancer diagnosis. So I tell this, kind of drop this bomb in the center of our conversation, because it is exactly where the fork in the road happened for me. I was pre-med. I was well on my way to go to school at Baylor Medical School. That was the plan. That was the plan for many, many years. And thanks to years, years, I mean, I pretty much was an unhealthy kid from the get-go and a definitely unhealthy teenager, had a lot of really odd issues, um, IBS, endometriosis, polycystic ovarian syndrome, Hashimoto's, later found out I had celiac and rheumatoid arthritis, just kind of a really unhealthy person from even my childhood on. And so when I started college um, in my pre-med world, when I started getting sicker and sicker, I thought it was just the stress of my, I was at that time trying to get a double major in biology and chemistry. I was working two full-time jobs. I was taking a huge medical, you know, a huge, huge course load. I was um, trying to pay for college, the first person in my family to go to college. So I was up against a lot of things. <laughs> so when I was getting sicker and landing in the ER every few weeks, um, it was just sort of missed. I was sort of written off as the histrionic you know, teenager drug seeker, as they kept giving me anxiolytics and antibiotics and anti-inflammatories and pain medications that were treating what they thought were my old patterns. It wasn't until right shy of my 20th birthday that I landed in ER in end organ failure, severely cachectic fluid built up in my abdomen, around my heart, in my lungs, um, a, a bowel blockage, a massive uh, lesion on my, a massive tumor on my right ovary, lesions in my liver throughout my entire uh, pelvic cavity, you name it, I was pretty much full to the brim with cancer. And so it was missed. It was missed by the best of the best medical minds. Um, but I was 19. I was a zebra. Any doctor who's been on this journey would know that in 1991, no one was thinking about a 19-year-old with stage four ovarian cancer. This is well before we understood about BRCA, which I found out I had later on, um, about five, six years later. This is long before we knew about epigenetics, which I learned about my epigenetics almost 20 years after that. I mean, so we've been, I've been alive long enough and kicked the can down the road long enough to learn a few things about the why of my process. And so where I was pre-med, where I was on the mission to go to medical school, at that time I was pretty disgruntled by how I was treated in the standard of care environment. Partially, and just to be fair, I was given less than three months to live. I was told I was too sick to even have a single dose of chemotherapy because my organs were all in failure. Um, my kidney function was stopped working, my liver function stopped working. And so they were concerned that a single dose of chemo would kill me. So everything was thought out properly, but it had been ignored and misdiagnosed for a good six to nine months. And so I lost some valuable time. So my expectation wasn't that I was gonna survive this. My expectation is that I wanted to understand it. So much like you, Dr. Chadi, the curiosity factor took over. So I had no belief system that I was gonna fix this. There was no Dr. Google. There was no, you know, none of these things. There was a Dewey Decimal System for crying out loud. I, you know, was working work study in my library and started perusing all of the information that I could. And that's when I realized that there were some parts happening here that were not understood even by the Western medical community. There was a differentiation between sort of the bench side of the science and the bedside 
of the science, and they were really a deep chasm between the two. And so this last 30 years of my life has been about bridging those two worlds together and helping understand and using data and using scientific evidence and using the things we learn today to apply it in a new and re-envisioned way at the bedside. So that sort of fast forwards to where we are today. Now, again, didn't expect to live. It's, it's, it's you know, in 1991, um, probably very few will think a 19 year old or 20 year old will get ovarian cancer. And it appears that you've learned later you had BRCA, uh, BRCA mutation one or two, do you know? Which um, two, two, yeah. So what did they do when they found you have stage four ovarian cancer? Were they eventually able to do either surgery or chemotherapy? What happened in terms of the treatment at the time? So one of the pieces of my story is that the doctor who was on call that night, who came in to deliver the news, I basically had to console him because he had a 19 year old daughter and it was very hard for him to come in and tell me what was going on. It was also the point where they knew there was nothing they could offer in that environment. So they referred me to an oncology practice in the small town I lived in. There was only one. Um, they looked, took one look at my record. They, you know, one look at my uh, imaging and one look at my labs and one look at me and said, you're not, we can't even give you a, a, any therapy. And so this is even at the town I lived in at that time, there wasn't even a hospice environment. So at the, in 1991, what was sort of equivalent to palliative care or hospice is what they referred me to. And so I was in a small town, uninsured, you know, on my own, two years out, you know, into college, no insurance, the whole bit. And so I was left to my own devices and I didn't have the resources to draw on for anything to do any other therapies to even ask or push back. Was your family involved? Like were, you had your, I mean, uh, was your family aware or no, where they were not involved? No. And this is another weird part of my story. So we're getting into some down some rabbit holes here, but I came from a pretty uh, poverty stricken, trauma stricken environment. And so part of my even taking off and moving to another state within a week of graduating high school was part of escaping that environment. And so what I did, I mean, I really do think what was integral to my ability to survive was basically what I call my two-year family fast um, during this period of time. And so I did not reach out to anybody in my family. So I really was going it alone. There were literally um, two people that I could count on and lean on at that time. Um, one of them was my now husband, what crazy 22 year old decides to stick it out with this, you know, 19 year old um, and a really, really amazing professor at my college who was supporting me. And then a local kind of general practice that was willing to do my labs and my um, imaging and my evaluations, because even the oncology team wrote me off and literally wrote me off because I was number one, uninsured. I was no longer a minor, but they didn't know what to do for, for me. There was nothing they could offer from standard of care options outside of palliative pain management. Um, and that was it. They wanted to hospitalize me because I had a bowel blockage, but I refused. So this was this was a disease that was confirmed by biopsy. They biopsied the yes. ovary. Oh, yes. It took about... I was 19. It was just shy of my 20th birthday that I ended up in the ER with this diagnosis per imaging and blood tests. But my biopsy and the ascites fluid they pulled, the malignant ascites fluid they pulled over eight and a half liters over several months. It took, it kept, I kept filling up again and again and again. Between that and the biopsy they took of my right ovary, the mass of my right ovary, it was confirmed. But then in 1991, it took several weeks to get that pathology back. And at that time, because this is 1991, you guys, 
the only operating test we had was CA125. And at that time, they weren't, it, we didn't have, like, we didn't know all the different buckets of ovarian cancer that we do today. So the best that I can piece together, I was not your standard serous adenocarcinoma, papillary serous adenocarcinoma, which is the most common type of ovarian cancer. It looked to be, when I look back on the information that I now know as a physician that I didn't know then, um, it was some type of a mixed malarian, mixed mucus, like um, mucinous form. So it was a very rare and aggressive form. So we don't know specifically because we didn't have the technologies at that time to determine. I didn't even have access to CT imaging at that time. It was an MRI was the only offering that I had at that time. And unfortunately, within about six months of having imaging done every two or three months, I ended up with gadolinium poisoning and shut down my kidneys. So it was just like one horrific experience mm -hmm. after another over the first few years. And I don't even know how I survived and that bit of time. Your CA-125 was elevated? Was pretty Over 15,000. Over 15,000. So you, yeah. had, you had the elevated CA-125, you had all of these, uh, the ovarian cancer stage four and you saw the oncology clinic in your hometown and, but eventually you had no chemotherapy? Like I did not. So, so this is what they, this is where it gets weird. Once they wrote me off to palliative care, they put me, because I wasn't taking any standard of care therapy, they put me back into the care of a, of a GP. And so in a palliative kind of approach. So as I continued to live further and started to reach out to say, now what, now what? they honestly had no idea what to do with me because I was still too cachectic. I was still too weak. My kidney function and my liver function were still not up to snuff that they still couldn't do anything. And so at that time I was dealing with, um, a lot of people know my history with this. I, I couldn't eat for two and a half months because of the bowel blockage. So I did small sips of water and herbal teas and whatnot. Ironically, 30 years later, we've understood the power of fasting with regards to certain cancer types. So even my work in studying people like Dr. Moreshi's work from 1909, that was the standard of care in cancer treatment in tumor debulking was fasting for many years up until the 1960s, when we freaked out and said, let's stop starving these patients. We've got to feed them no matter what, they can't lose weight. And so that was just some weird accidental findings that led me to surviving sort of the unsurvivable. I can't explain the how or the why of how things unfolded as they did, but every, for every month I continued to be alive, doctors did not know what to do with me. And because like I was never, four, never, but you, like you've never received, like they were, they were, they never gave you actual treatment against the cancer, such nope. as chemotherapy or none of that stuff. Nope. And because I was stage four surgery was off the table. And so that's pretty common even today in standard of care oncology. Um, in the, the chemotherapy, as I made it through three months and six months and nine months, because of my compromised both liver and kidney function, they were still very, very, very compromised. Even though I was alive and somewhat stable, they still had me in the throes of palliative or hospice. And by the time I reached that about seven, eight months out from this process where I was already past my expiration date by several months, that's when I got curious and started digging into other approaches. And that's when I started seeking things like acupuncture for my pain management and my digestive function, which was life-changing. I actually have my doctorate in oriental medicine as well. I ended up doing dual training um, in that. That's when I started learning about herbal medicines. That's when I started really utilizing high doses of Pau Darko tea, which ironically would be another 10, 12 years 
before the literature showed that Paudarco, a Tibebuia is its Latin name, is an herb that actually induces apoptosis in ovarian cancer cell lines. Go figure. So sort of the accidental stumblings. The fasting that I continued um, beyond this point um, that I just brought into my life. Uh, yeah, it's just a yeah. little bit like it's, you know. The, the it's overwhelming. I wrote well, a whole uh, whole yeah, written about it. Because, <laughs> you know, with having all of these things in the liver that you mentioned, I mean, eventually, the, the uh, as you know, cancer cells yeah. continue to grow and the liver yeah. function will deteriorate. But yeah. somehow it didn't grow like it was expected. It's exactly. Because you, you had in the beginning until you were di went to the emergency room, it was growing fast. You were sick. You had the all well, of not them. not fast. We figured it would probably been now that I can look back, I figured it had been growing since I was about 16 years old. So that was because of the health issues I had, the ongoing, probably small uh, intermittent bowel blockages, the types of pain I was having in my right epigastric and the right ovarian. They kept telling me I was having cysts, my right ovary, um, you know, polycystic ovarian. It kind of kept getting written off as that. And so it was definitely brewing for several years. And in that last six to seven months before I was officially diagnosed, I was in the ER every single month in excruciating pain, unable to keep things down, unable to survive. My belly was getting more and more swollen and they told me I was just gaining weight. In fact, at one point they kept trying to say that I had an ectopic pregnancy, despite the fact I wasn't sexually active. Um, they kept saying that I like, you know, there were just all kinds of crazy things that were going on leading up to that, that left me pretty uh, disenfranchised from the medical community of not being believed when I kept expressing that this was different than my previous health issues, that yes, I had health issues that looked a lot like this, but this was different somehow. Um, and so it, it put a- Yeah, no, no, that, that part, the delay, <laughs> yeah. the, the, the delay until you were diagnosed, I obviously right. I, I get because it does happen still to today. And sometimes Absolutely, it yeah. takes time until somebody is diagnosed. I think what is, what I don't understand is after you were diagnosed and you had the biopsy that confirmed yeah. a form of ovarian cancer with the CA125 in the thousands, yeah. I can't understand what happened to lead to the regression of that cancer. So yeah. I don't, I don't yeah. know. I'm trying to understand what you, what treatment you received yeah. that led yeah. to the regression. Well, this is the entire, the entirety of my entire career. Yeah. This is what's led me into the field of integrative oncology because it was not by choice. It was not by, oh, there's good data to back this. It was by being an in of one living example, living laboratory of things that I learned and then, or like tried or experienced that later on the science confirmed what I was dealing with. And so when I think about it today, 30 years later, right? So what is that hindsight is 2020. I believe that fasting was integral to my survival. Pretty certain of that. And there's loads of evidence to suggest that that's the case. In fact, as I mentioned before, there's studies all the way back from Dr. Moreshi's work in 1909 that that was the standard of care for tumor debulking was fasting. So I have that background. And then people like Dr. Walter Longo's work in fasting and cancer, especially fasting around chemo and whatnot. We've had a lot of really good research that's come out in the last decade or so about the power of intermittent fasting, caloric restriction um, in the realm of starving cancer pathways, starving cancer growth. And so that I believe was what kind of put the brakes on the process. The other thing that was sort of accidental was the, the change, I made a major change in my diet 
major change in my lifestyle, major change in my stressors, and a major change in dealing with my trauma and my background of that. So I'm pretty positive that the changes in that were integral. So remember I was a biology chemistry major. I switched it. I took the rest of that semester off and to end the fall semester of 20, uh, golly, 1991. I took the rest of that semester off, but I started back in January of 1992 and regrouped my my um, education as psychology and biology and in 1992 i basically created a self-constructed major of psychoneuroimmunology and so the work of dr robert ader the work of candace pert the work of um, you know many of these folks in sort of the the psycho neuroimmune aspect of this i'm certain is also what helped me change gears. There was significant. When you look at ACE scores today, you've probably spoken about this on your podcast, but adverse childhood events, we have lots of studies showing, even since the 1980s, that patients under the age of 18 that were exposed to these 10 particular stressors. So for each yes they have of those 10 exposures before the age of 18, their risk of chronic illnesses and cancers go up exponentially. I had 10 out of 10 of those. So as my adult self looking back and from the literally at this point in my career over 10,000 patients I've guided through this process, I've seen that that is a very common theme of these major you know, traumas in our young aggressive cancer patients. And so I saw that for myself and reconstructed my major around just dealing with the trauma of that. Again, I want your listeners to hear, I had no expectation and I was not in any way or shape or form believing I was treating myself for cancer or that I was going to somehow survive this. I was simply curious and simply wanting to learn and understand in the short time I had left. That's what my experience was all about. So, um, so just, just to, to move forward, but the, <laughs> as you continue, I'm sorry, you're like, tell me no, about you. I'm like, Oh, no, geez. No, no. As, you, <laughs> as you continued though, as you continued and you had repeat scans or MRIs and so on. Yep. Did you did, did these without any antineoplastic therapy? What right. you're telling me, yeah. you saw that the tumors in the liver have improved and the uh, ascites or the uh, has uh, stopped accumulating. Yeah, so it took about four to five months after that initial because it was interesting. The ascites. I, I gotta tell you though. I gotta tell yeah. you, Anisha. In term, when I listen to this. Yeah. It makes me question the diagnosis. I'm not going to lie. This is so, it's right? funny. You say this As a medical thing. oncologist yeah. who has right. done this. Right. Um, yes, I know. I'm not, I'm not a gynae. I'm not like a specialized right. in gyne malignancies. But, right. but whenever yeah. I hear a story like this, that's why mm -hmm. I asked about the biopsy and so on. Yeah. It makes me question whether the diagnosis was accurate at the time and whether you really had an actual cancer. <laughs> so this, I, I laugh because this is part of why I'd never told my story up until 12, about 12 or 13 years ago. Because whenever I tried to explain my story to other healthcare providers or try to get follow-up, it was so frankly unbelievable to people that I would either be written off, ridiculed, treated hostily, or ignored altogether. So when you ask me like, well, why didn't they? Why didn't they? My information was sent not just to the local, it was sent off for secondary, um, evaluation and second follow-up as well. There was no doubt of my diagnosis. I've had pre, you know, since then I've had blood biopsies, um, over the last few years, but I don't show any circulating tumor cells anymore. I haven't really had any, uh, cancering process probably since 2009 
was the last time that things were pretty active within my body and they've moved through these processes. I still have a very kind of shriveled up tumor in my right ovary, um, kind of what's very calcified, walled off. You can see that on imaging. I still have lesions in my liver. I still have peritoneal implants and lymphadenopathy in my groin. I deal with chronic ongoing um, lymphedema. I have been hesitant to poke a hole in any of that, but I still run my, I mean, my HE4 and my um, CA125 have never been normal ever, ever, ever. But my CA125 dropped significantly about 10 years ago, down under a hundred. And that took me almost two decades to even get it down under a thousand to work on. And so all of these different pieces, it's just been a long chronic process. And I will tell you that I've had multiple experiences with patients like this myself. Yeah. And that's where if I had not experienced it myself, I would never believe that somebody else could experience it. Um, if, it if I'd not had those experiences myself, luckily today we have the type of technologies where I can do liquid blood biopsies without being invasive. I can do tissue, fresh tissue biopsies in a way that is incredibly telling. Um, the imaging today has become incredibly sophisticated and even an imaging that doesn't even involve uh, contrast dye and radiation, which is really exciting to me because both of those carry harm over time. And so that's where I feel like these processes are, are pretty interesting of how we've learned so much over 30 years that we didn't even have an, an, any idea about decades ago. So one of the things we've learned, as you know, uh, Nisha, is that um, patients with, who have BRCA2 positivity um, who we are certain that they have the BRCA2 or even BRCA1, yeah. the treatment they should undergo um, oophorectomy, which is removal yeah. of both ovaries. And in addition, there are many women that would be recommended mastectomies as well yeah. because of the significant high risk of developing breast cancer, especially in someone with a non-ovarian cancer. Yeah. So, um so I'm trying to understand, uh, and then I'm going to pivot into sure. some of the other topics, but just to sure. close the loop on this, I'm trying to understand if you were BRCA2 positive, and this is confirmed, why did you not undergo bilateral oophorectomy and mastectomies? Maybe you did, I don't know, but you just mentioned there's something on the ovary, yeah. so I'm assuming you did not yeah. have that. And it's, as you know, I mean, we, we do that. This is a routine that should undergo for BRCA2 positive uh, women. So first of all, today, I work with a lot of BRCA positive patients, and I do not believe personally that surgery is your only option. I believe that I support women who make that, make that choice for themselves. And because part of it is I've had experience with seven women who underwent prophylactic surgeries because of strong family histories with their BRCA diagnosis that ended up dying of the, that, the cancer they did the prophylactic surgeries to remove. And part of that is because no one did a proper thorough workup before they had those surgeries to even know that likely they already had cancer in process um, and they didn't know that it was there. And so they kind of leaned more into the, um, what's the word, the peace of mind of what the surgery offered instead of getting really clear and curious about what was going on under the hood that may not be obvious. And so what I've created over the last 30 years is a very powerful methodology for determining, for testing, assessing, and addressing, and not guessing what's going on underneath the hood. My specialty is proteonomics and epigenetics and all those components. So we understand now that BRCA is really just a really 
problematic methylation issue and a difficulty in DNA repair. And so there are so many tools in our toolbox, both off-label drugs, standard of care pharmaceuticals, and even nutraceuticals and natural substances that are very powerful for DNA repair and for um, upregulating and making the BRCA uh, DNA repair gene work much better. So epigenetics is that inference of above the gene. So we can actually switch genes back on and off most of the time with our dietary and lifestyle choices. BRCA is frankly no different. And so we are educating women in doing those pieces where, and men who have this as well, we're doing thorough testing. I use a very particular set of basic labs to evaluate people's overall terrain function, their overall immune function, their overall metabolic function, um, their overall, you know, just constitution. So we have that data first. We also do really thorough imaging. We also do regular um, review. So we're constantly like for women, like with my background, I still get uh, a vaginal ultrasound every two years. And I still get um, other types of imaging, especially now that there's things that I can do that don't cause harm to my kidneys. Cause I still about a 30, 70% kidney function from the gadolinium poisoning that I've not been able to overcome over all these years. And so there's just other ways that we can go about this doc. So yes, I advise on a lot of families and help them understand this piece, but we do a lot more testing than just looking at the gene because there's still a ton of women. What we know about the BRCA gene is they're often very, very responsive to chemotherapy, but they recur much quicker because we're not correcting the undercurrent. So I tell people, there are people out there who are experts in the tumor, but I'm an expert in the terrain. So I know how to evaluate for and correct for and support the overall terrain so that the tumor doesn't get the upper hand. And so a lot of the cool research that's happening today that I'm really drawn to are things like the Toft theory and the adaptive theory around cancer, that this is more of an evolutionary process and it's more um, of a metabolic process that when we shut off the pathways that are keeping that tumor in motion, we can stall the process sometimes accidentally put it in remission. That is never my goal with a patient. I, that's an incredible accidental side effect if that happens. Um, but no one would probably consider me in remission with my process this many years later because of what you still see inside my body. But ultimately what we're doing is we're coming at this in a very different approach and a very different mindset and a very different philosophy, which is what even sets the stage for the next parts of our conversation about naturopathy versus allopathic medicine versus integrative versus standard of care oncology and where this has evolved in my own understanding, as well as the hundreds of physicians I now train worldwide, including a pile of and a growing number of standard of care oncologists and the number of researchers that I get to consult with worldwide on this because the curious things like what happened to me are happening to a lot of people and we're wanting we don't really have an environment which we can study this so we've developed this methodology and a data platform to collect this information so we can start to really evaluate how to even consider these processes in an in of one situation, meaning that each person is entirely unique. We talk about precision medicine today, but we really just give it lip service. We're not really applying it at the level that it could be. And that's what I hope to see change in the next 20 years. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm not, you know, I think I've, I've had patients who declined surgery when it was recommended. I guess my question was, was it recommended to you to undergo bilateral oophorectomy and bilateral mastectomies? And you just said no. So it actually wasn't. And here's why is because I still had active cancer in my body and it was still considered stage four and it's never recommended to do surgery in those situations. Okay. So multiple oncologists said, I wouldn't touch it. 
with a 10 foot pole. And so now that I'm this many years out, there are moments, there's moments when, you know, people are like, well, do we, you know, cause there's, there is a concern that if you come in now and do surgery, that I might wake something up. The process of angiogenesis gets really kicked up with a surgical intervention like this. And so we want to be mindful of that. And I've always ridden kind of the, the line of having some hyperangiogenic processes in my body. So my vasoendothelial growth factor is pretty elevated on a normal basis. My TGF beta um, has tended to be elevated. I've seen it come and go in the process of watching that ebb and flow. And it's gotten worse around things like mold exposure and whatnot, which will also elevate those processes. Certain viruses can elevate those processes. So I work really hard to tend to the rest of my inner garden to keep those things at bay. And so because I'm asymptomatic, and even the NCCN guidelines a few years ago said, if a patient is asymptomatic, um, and even if they have elevated tumor markers, and even if they have something on the imaging, as long as they're asymptomatic surgery or other um, med-onc conventional approaches may not have any impact on overall survival. You haven't so had I, any You haven't had any new biopsies since the first one? Like have no. you ever Although had another biopsy since my, the 90s? No, I haven't had a biopsy since the first time. Um, but what's exciting to me, and that's going to happen this summer, I will be getting my gallery run. So I'll be doing the gallery liquid blood biopsy. Uh -huh. So I'll be getting that run for the first time. I will be having my pre nuvo run for the first time, which is the non-contrast uh, dye and non-radiation MRI, which I'm very excited about. So that's a new technology we can touch on here at another conversation. And I'm also getting a liquid blood biopsy from a company called Signaterra. And so there's a few liquid blood biopsies. This is what's also exciting in my career of watching these come out. But for years, I used things like CT um, cell search and a few others to run CTCs and they were elevated for years. And then there were a few other sort of non-traditional um, circulating tumor cell assays out of Germany and out of Greece that I used for years that also showed elevations of this. So I would use those as sort of my surrogate testing um, in the interim, but I don't personally put a lot of weight in those because they were sort of early adopters into this technology, but the technology now that are FDA approved and insurance covered has come a long way. So I'm getting ready to do a whole gamut of that this summer to see where things stand, despite the fact that I'm feeling pretty healthy, pretty good. My HE4 is normal for the first time in my whole life. My CA125 is always a bit elevated, but I still have a lot of stuff going on in my pelvis. So, yeah. you know, go figure, but yeah. Interesting so, journey. Yeah. So as, <laughs> as things, let's go back a little bit to the 90s and late 90s. As things stabilized a little bit and you realized yeah. you're not dying. Yeah. Um, what you went, what type of training did you yeah. actually get? And, and what kind of a, because you, I mean, you, you have a lot of letters after your name. So tell me a little bit of what sure. these are and the type of training that you received that made you qualify to teach others what you know. Perfect. So again, you know, this was me being a pre-med thinking I'm going to be a doctor. Here I go. And then I became a patient, right? So that's where things shifted gears at that time, because I was pretty frustrated with what was going on with my experience in standard of care, which was heartbreaking because that was really what I was setting out to do is to be a conventional doctor. I stumbled upon this crazy field called naturopathic medicine. I knew nothing of it. I'd never heard anything about it. And what little bit I could find held quite a bit of controversy, as, as you still noted today in your, in your own review, that it had this. 
just to back up for your listeners, um, naturopathic medicine up until the Flexner report in 1910, 1909, 1910, somewhere in that zone, the majority of medical schools in the United States were naturopathic medical schools, medical schools of homeopathy and medical schools of osteopathy. Those were the main medical schools of this area until the Flexner report came out in the early 1900s that basically started to systematically shut down those other schools of thought, those other schools of training, and started focusing entirely into the type of medicine we're all accustomed to today. Now, remember, at that time, naturopathic medical school, these were still MDs, right? They just happened to come through a different filter. So in the late 1970s or early 1970s, well, somewhere in the early, kind of mid-1970s, there was only one school left of naturopathic medicine. And it kind of got a resurrection. I think there was a lot of things like people kind of getting back into the naturalist movement and whatnot in the sixties and seventies, push some interest in this area. And it's been a slow trod to pick up the momentum of this again. But now in the United States, we have Bastyr Medical School, which is based out of Seattle and its secondary campus in Southern California. We have NUNH, which is the naturopathic university in Portland, Oregon. We have the Southwest College of Naturopathic Medicine in Tempe, Arizona. That's where I went to school. We have up until just recently, the school in Connecticut that just closed recently. We have two in Canada, Toronto and Vancouver. Um, what's, and the, what's the curriculum like? like okay. what, how many so years? How many years? Yeah. And what's well, the curriculum? It's, it's a pre-med requisite, just like any other, um, you know, medical training, like four, four years, four years, re, re, um, four years, residential, you know, in-house classroom training. Um, we have the same type of boards where we have to have our USMLEs to enter into clinic. We have to have our post, you know, clinical boards to graduate. We have to maintain our CMEs. Our first two years are really no different than standard of care. Um, on call our standard of care training, because anatomy is anatomy, pathology is pathology. So, you know, like all of the coursework, there's a really great link I can give you for your, for your um, listeners that compares and contrasts our academic education to say yours. And so you'll see that, for instance, we get a lot more biochemistry, we get a lot more pharmacology, and we get a lot more uh, nutrition, but you guys have a little bit more in, um, I think pathology, there's maybe one others, but only by a few hours. So our curriculums are actually quite up, you know, up to snuff, quite on par where I did my training in Arizona. We also had the naturopathic school there. We had the DO school and we had the U of a conventional medical school. We all did circuit circular rotations and each other's departments. My training, I worked in, a, in an AIDS clinic for three years. I worked in a pain management hospital for a, for a year. I worked in an ER environment for a year. Like we all did our rotations in a similar fashion. So I was trained to deliver babies. In fact, I thought I was gonna be a midwife in the beginning. After 36 babies I delivered, I was like, I will never sleep again, so I'm not doing that. We have DEA in the States where we have licensure. We can get a DEA number. So in Arizona, I can prescribe medications, even chemotherapy if I wanted to, but I, I don't. Um, and then you we can, can do minor. Uh, you can, let me just, you can prescribe yeah. chemotherapy? In, the, in certain states, it's in our, if we've had the extra training, like I have my fellowship in, a, in the American Board of Naturopathic Oncology, when you've had that extra 
oncology training. We do rotations with standard of care oncologists. We do residencies in those environments. But we you're, actually but you're not board certified. You're not. You can't be board certified in medical oncology or in hematology because you Correct. must complete Correct. fellowship in hematology exactly. and oncology, right? right. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So in those people, but those are, those are just some of the examples. So I can prescribe drugs. I can prescribe, you know, I can deliver babies. I can do minor surgery. Those were all the things I was trained in. I don't use those things. In fact, I moved when I graduated to a state that was at that time unlicensed. And so I did much more consulting, counseling, teaching with my patients. And then over time, um, as the state's requirements changed and as my confidence level and my trainings changed, as I did multiple, um, for residencies and, and internships elsewhere to expand on my, on my, you know, expertise, I started to bring those things more in office. We started doing a lot more IV therapeutics. We brought in a medical doctor into our community as well. Um, in the state of Colorado, where I was at that time, we were able to order labs and imaging and all, you know, all the typical components of this. So our, our training is really in a similar vein. Now that is not true for other parts of the world. So there are no other parts of the world outside of North America, outside of Canada and the U.S. that has four-year naturopathic medical school training. The rest are often online offerings or very shortened versions of some options that are not medically trained. They do not have the same caliber of the medical training skills. They don't do the residencies and the rotations through medical environments. So that's where there's been a little bit of confusion of our background and our training. Also in the United States, there are folks that can do online coursework that can then call themselves naturopathic doctors. Now we're working very hard on a national level to change the, the designation of that. And so there are now, I can't remember how many states we're up to, but I'll also give you the link, which is the AANMC, which is the American Association of Naturopathic Medical Colleges, which has that comparison of our curriculum, what states are licensed, what states are up for licensure, what are the scope of practices in those licensed states, and then what states are working towards changing that, that language so that folks who do have an online curriculum are not getting confused with people who've actually had medical training and internships and residencies that put them in a very different caliber of their expertise. So mm -hmm. we're taught to practice within our scope of practice of what we were trained in. And so also then whatever state we land in, we practice within the jurisdiction of that environment. I just have so never heard, I've never heard that you're allowed to do any kind of minor surgeries or oh, heck yeah. with, I mean, what kind oh, of, yeah. can you give me an example? What do you mean by so that? I removed lipomas, toenails, uh, did surgical sutures, um, biop like just superficial biopsies. Um, golly, I'm trying to this is part of naturopathic school. Yes. But, yeah. So, yeah. so Nisha, the four, the four let, year training. Yeah. Let me read to you what, um, how naturopathy is stated uh, <laughs> on Wikipedia. Uh, I know. I'm going to take yeah. maybe a minute to read this, but I'd like yeah. you to reflect on this, but I would like yeah. to read it in all entirety. Please do. Naturopathy or naturopathic medicine is a form of alternative medicine, a wide array of pseudoscientific practices branded as natural, non-invasive, or promoting quote unquote, self-healing are employed by its practitioners who are known as naturopaths. Difficult to generalize, these treatments range from outright Quakery, <laughs> like homeopathy, to widely accepted practices like psychotherapy. 
the ideology and methods of naturopathy are based on vitalism and folk medicine rather than evidence-based medicine, although some practitioners may use techniques supported by evidence. Naturopathic practitioners commonly recommend against following modern medical practices, including, but not limited to, medical testing, drugs, vaccinations, and surgery. Instead, naturopathic practice relies on unscientific notions, often leading to naturopaths to diagnoses and treatments that have no factual merits. That's what Wikipedia says yeah. about naturopathy, which is yeah. the profession yeah. that you have. Do you want to, any, what, why is this all false? Can you reflect on that? Sure. Well, first of all, what they've done is they've taken one big bucket and they've placed within that bucket, those two categories that I was speaking to earlier. They're putting the four-year well-trained, well-tested for, well-vetted um, practitioners like myself and my colleagues who've attended the four-year programs and gone through the typical board certifications and CME regulations and met, met our, you know, have malpractice and, you know, carry all the things, right? They put us in the bucket with those same folks that are basically what we call the diploma mills, the folks that are the online versions, right? They've put us all together in one cluster. That's where this discussion or this article really goes awry and that they're missing the differentiator. And that's why I'd like you to have some of those links and sites for your, to go with the, uh, the discussion notes here so that folks can actually do their own <laughs> research because Wikipedia, Wikipedia is, of course, no one should be putting any weight into Wikipedia because it's just a lot of people's ideas being put in there, but these people have put this in one bucket. So what, let me differentiate that from the get-go. And I sort of alluded to that before you read this. Number two, that it's very interesting because I'm trying to remember the trajectory and the timing but it was, I think, in the early to mid 90s that we started the, the um, center. I think it was just called the Alternative Medicine Center. It was, part, it was like a small arm of the NIH that started in the mid 90s. And I think it was called AIM or I can't, I can't remember exactly what the first name of it was, but that's gone through iterations. And at first it was like the Alternative Medicine Department, which was a tiny little look. And they, I think they had like a million dollars a year for research. Okay. Then it evolved about 10 years later, it switched over to CAM. So complementary and alternative medicine, that same department, it expanded. They got like a billion dollars to do research in these types of therapies, which seems like a lot of money. But when you look at the cost of even looking at a single checkpoint inhibitor drug today, that's billions of dollars in research for that. Um, you start to realize it's okay. Well, it's evolving, it's expanded itself. It's got a little bit more you know, roots to it. It changed again just a few years ago to CIM, the, the complementary and integrative medicine. And you'll notice that they've eliminated the word alternative because just like that bucket you just described of the well-trained naturopathic doctors with the, naturopath, the naturopathy or naturopaths that are the non-four-year trained doctors put into one bucket, the same thing happens when you put alternative medicine and integrative medicine into the same bucket you get one aspect that is very much the folklore and very much not well vetted, not well studied, not well articulated, but you also get that in the same bucket with things that are. So those need to be differentiated as well. 
And so that's where this process has changed over the last 30 years of even how we define alternative versus integrative versus complementary medicine. So we've watched the evolution over the last 30 years of even how we define it today. And now the CIM part of NIH has a, a massive funding and massive reach in the realm of finally doing research on a lot of these therapies that have been around for millennia that were otherwise sort of ignored. And when you talk about this sort of pseudoscience, you have to remember that up until the early 1900s, this was the standard, this was medicine in Europe and in most of the United States. And these were medical doctors. They just happened to be naturopathic medical doctors or osteopathic medical doctors or homeopathic medical doctors. In fact, one of the biggest ongoing medical schools in the United States is out of New York and it's called Hahnemann School of Medicine, which was originally a homeopathic medical school. And even today we're still fighting over whether homeopathy is valid or not. And yet there are loads of amazing studies about its efficacy, a very difficult to explain phenomenon in medicine, but there's even a really compelling study out of MD Anderson with some well-known integrative oncology researchers there that have shown some of the efficacy of even homeopathy in the treatment of breast cancer. So we, we kind of poo-poo it. And yet you have to remember there's the side of we're poo-pooing it because we're not having the studies around it or not as many good studies around it, but you cannot really make money off of homeopathy or herbal remedies. You can't patent these things. And so I look at this as an example of the oldest therapy that is out there today with regards to integrative oncology is mistletoe. And this has been a therapy that is used as an injection for over a hundred years in the treatment of cancer. And if you're somebody with a diagnosis of cancer and you live in Europe, depending on where you are in Europe, you have somewhere from 60 to an 80% chance of having this therapy offered to you by your standard of care oncologist, because it's been so part of the ethos for a hundred years. And we just completed a phase one clinical trial here at Hopkins that I helped, um, with the IRB on and helped advise on as it's getting ready to go into publication in the fall and move quickly into phase two. But these therapies, we had to raise our money for this. No one from NIH wanted to fund this study. So we went philanthropically, we went through donation. We had to leave the industry to get money to, to pay for these types of studies. That's how it's gonna be when you're looking at some of these therapies. But where I also hear in that thing you read about testing, now. I have so many people who complain about how much blood I take from them, <laughs> kind of known as the vampire, because I am so much about testing. I don't make a move without data. I am data-driven, not but there, there is no, I mean, there's a lot of things that are being done. Well, two issues here. Number one, yeah. I think the medical community will always struggle when you say alternative medicine. Exactly. There's That's no, why I don't even use we that. We don't term. believe that should be alternative. Now, when it comes to, and, and part of the reason, by the way, I want to educate yeah. who who's listening to this is because patients and families do ask a lot about these things. About, so it's really yes. very important. So whenever you bring complementary, I think folks will say, okay, you're adding something to my standard of care that might help. But, but I think the, the issue here, it might help. And whenever you say it might help, we can all agree it might hurt, right? I mean, we, when I don't have evidence that something might work, 
it could hurt. So whenever there is a remedy or whatever it is that you want to implement that might interact with radiation, with surgery, with chemotherapy, if it has not been studied, what that combination could do, by the same token, where will we say, well, we don't know if it's if it helped, then I don't know if it hurts. So conducting studies are important, is important. And these studies are not being done. So I struggle with the idea that we will still recommend some of these things without proper studies to, to do this. And, and one of the things that I've also read that the American Cancer Society has, you know, I mean, they, 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 are, they are, don't look upon uh, naturopathy favorably. And that's, you know, American Cancer Society. So, so you need to help us just reconcile sure. these issues. Sure. Because again, sure. I, I agree with you. Data is so important. Absolutely. And I'm never against trying to study right. the question, but I go to Costco and I see mm -hmm. all of these type of drugs out there um, and it's a billion, billions and billions being consumed. And we have no clue if they, help, if they help people. So, so I guess whenever you say, I don't do, I don't recommend anything without data, Mm -hmm. You know, it's the nuance. I mean, what kind of data do you have? How strong the right. data? What type of trial do we have that really makes you recommend whatever intervention you're recommending? First, I love these questions. And so let me, let me just qualify again what the ACS is uncomfortable with and what Wikipedia shared are because they're, they're still making the mistake of putting two different organisms into the same bucket. Okay. These are very different uh, practitioners, very different trained in, um, you know, institutions, very different trained uh, people. So we don't, in my world, alternative is a bad word. Okay. Just as it is for you. So I am about the integrative. That's the word I choose to use because there's, that's exactly where I want to use, not just evidence-based because by the time we get full on evidence-based, those studies are quite expensive and time, time consuming. I think the average they say today is takes 17 years to get from the bench to the bedside in any of our clinical trials for standard of care and other. So that's just the reality of the beast, right? And so we have too many patients literally dying in the waiting room while they're waiting for the compelling data to say, yes, you get my stamp of approval to take that therapy. So evidence-informed is another very important component of this. So we have a lot of things that we're able to sort of make educated assumptions or educated guesses about because of other previous experiences or previous mechanisms of actions that worked in certain conditions that we were able to apply and have a particular expected outcome. So evidence-based and evidence-informed is what an integrative approach is really about. There's even a field or an entire organization called the Society of Integrative Oncology, which is um, based out of the United States. And this last year, they opened up a branch in Britain, in uh, the UK, the British Society of Integrative Oncology. And this is a growing number of integrative practitioners and standard of care oncologists coming together really pooling the resources and asking the questions that you're specifically speaking to here, like what does work, what doesn't work, what needs deeper ex you know, exploration and deeper exp you know, explanation. 100% in agreement with that. The other side of it is funding is, is, even though it's expanded, as I mentioned over the last 30 years, it's still a drop in the bucket for the types of things that are out there already being employed by a lot of people, a lot of consumers that are frankly causing a lot of harm to themselves. I see this all of the time. In fact, Dr. Chatty, what I see the most is I have patients who come to me and I feel like my biggest job is to take them off the majority of the things they're on. 
How okay. Do they, how do they come to? Uh, and but you don't have yeah. to call me doctor, Shadi. Please. I know. Okay, Shadi. Thank yeah. you. But, oh, uh, yes. but uh, how? I mean, like, do they get? How do they find somebody? You? How do they find you? Do they Google yeah. stuff? Like, how do? How do you get patients? Yeah. So it's funny. You know, I was in a very tiny mountain town for many years. I never shared my story. People knew I had a cancer history. They didn't know the details of it. In 2012, because I had a large practice where I saw a ton of cancer here in my tiny four four corners part of the United States, um, I kind of ended up on the map and ended up being invited to speak at a society at a uh, excuse me an ovarian cancer symposium in Denver, Colorado, and there were multiple doctors that basically, what's the word I'm looking for? Not vetoed, but um, boycotted my speaking because of the ND after my name. So there were a whole group of doctors. What, that does, basically, what does ND start for? A naturopathic doctor. And so when they saw that I was on the roster, there were a load of doctors who said, I'm not attending and I'm not presenting because this is horseshit. Sorry, but you know, that you've no, got no, it's unfiltered. You could say whatever you want. Good, 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 good. <laughs> My sailor mouth comes out sometimes when I'm passionate, but they, they boycotted it. And so what was so funny is I was almost, I thought, oh, they're going to cancel me or I just need to back out gracefully. This isn't okay. Instead, what happened is it created such a stir that they had me present three times that weekend because they, they had other tracks going simultaneously and no one wanted to attend the tracks that were happening at the same time I was talking. So they wanted to make sure the other people speaking had people listening. So they had me present three different times. We crashed all of their databases because of the interest coming in. Clearly, this is 2012, this is 10 years ago. Clearly people were, patients were interested in this conversation. We still know today that about somewhere between 60 and 70% of all patients are bringing on an integrative approach and they're not telling their conventional oncologists. That needs to change. That is my personal mission is to change that and to have these conversations. What was happening is all these patients suddenly felt like they could come out of the closet, listen to me and start to have a dialogue with their doctors. It was so well received that suddenly my little tiny town in, in Southwest Colorado, I had patients starting to find me from all over the world because the ovarian cancer world is very small in comparison to other cancers. You get about 24 to 25,000 women diagnosed every year, about 17,000 of those women, 17,000 women die a year of this. And they realize that the research isn't there for them, that the dollars aren't there for them and that they have to be scrappy and resilient and resourceful on their own. So they have created a lot of online support groups, like Inspire is a giant support group, and they talk to each other. And when you have a handful of women who had stories like mine, who survived the unsurvivable, sharing their experiences, we suddenly had people coming from all over the world to Podunk, Durango, Colorado, finding us. It was never expected, right? That was not what I wanted to do. In fact, I never wanted to work with cancer because of my own experience. But within my first week of practice, I had a man roll in, in a wheelchair, wanting pain management, wanting to use my expertise in acupuncture, who had a GBM that had pressed his parietal lobe out. He was in a diaper. He couldn't talk. He was morphine pain breakthrough. He couldn't handle it. He was, you know, it just, it was awful. He lived another 18 months past that experience. Um, with a quality of life and ability to walk and talk and not wear a diaper and share the love of his life and his kids and the whole experiences. So my life turned drastically as people started to catch wind of this crazy naturopath in Colorado who was helping people. And I was helping people not using pseudoscience. I was helping people by skimming the literature, exploring what was helpful. This man had seizures that were not responsive to any medications. And I went back through the literature and found out about the ketogenic diet used for seizures back in the 1920s for pediatric 
pediatric populations. And I thought if it's safe for kids, it'll be safe for this adult. These were the examples of evidence-informed approaches I took in my practice. I luckily started running labs on everybody. I started finding that there were what patterns. Kind of, in labs. What kind of labs? What kind of labs do you do? I run what my patients have coined the trifecta, which is a C-reactive protein, a sedimentation rate, and a lactase dehydrogenase on every single patient for every single month during their time with me. Those tests, if you Google any one of those by themselves, by themselves, they are Prognostic. They're non-specific. They're non right. They're non-specific. But if you also look up like CRP in cancer or LDH in cancer or sed rate in cancer, you'll see that there's loads of data around how they can be a marker. There's even studies now after all the years I've been running these tests that took all three of those into account to show that those three tests, when they run together, are more significant and more telling than a cancer marker or even imaging. So the story I always tell patients with cancer is I have, I'm way more concerned when I see a patient with a normal cancer marker and a clean scan, but with all three of those labs being elevated, I know it's a matter of days, weeks, or months before they're exploding with cancer throughout their body. So I feel much more comfortable with patients with normal trifectas, even with cancer burden than I do with patients who have elevated, um, you know, then um, have cancer burden in their body, but have normal levels. So I the watch people that come to see the people that come to see you are mainly not, they have some disease, like whether it could exactly. be, it could be yeah. cardiac, whatever it is, it doesn't have to be cancer. Could be right. Something. Right. Well, when but I first started in practice in, yeah. in the state of Colorado, there was a month, a, an annual thing called the nine R health fair, and they would run a CBC, a CMP, a thyroid test, a, a CRP, a vitamin D3. And if it was men, they would do a PSA. So we would get those tests every year. And I started watching trends and patterns in my healthy population. And I started to see pretty early on that my population wasn't healthy. Neither is about 50% of the US. And at this point in time, 88% of the US has metabolic dysfunction. So that means only 12% of us are metabolically healthy, meaning only 12% of us have probably good cardiovascular and metabolic health and diabetes, like all of those things. We're not a healthy population. So I started seeing those trends in my healthy population. But when I started seeing more and more cancer patients, those numbers were even far more skewed and far more sensitive and far more vulnerable. And the only thing their oncologists were looking at at that time was a CBC to see if they were um, at a level of their ANC where they could get their next dose of chemotherapy. And maybe every once in a while, a CMP would be thrown in, a metabolic panel would be thrown in. Mm -hmm. And I started to recognize that we were grossly limiting what we were looking at with our patients, because you can have patients that can get the next round of chemotherapy, but if you ignore those other patterns, you may be killing the cancer, but you may also be killing the patient simultaneously. And so I started seeing those trends. And what I started to learn early on was that I could help those patients have a better response to their standard of care have a better reaction, less side effects, better um, actual response to the therapy and longer progressive free survival and overall survival compared to those who just did standard of care by itself. Have you, have you, we, published, have you published any of these? Well, there's luckily there's a lot of other things that have published. No, like, no, I mean, like your, your experience, you have a database and so on. Have you we're looked- building, We're building the database to publish. So we're, we're actually actively raising funds to um, finish the build out of the database, but we have, my gosh, between my data, as well as the 88 doctors who come through my training program, and we have another hundred or so starting in the fall, we're collecting the data from everybody because we're all using the methodology. We're all using the testing. We're all able to bring this all forth. And we've got just 
I mean, because I'm testing monthly in these patients, we have a really nice trajectory to see what's making a difference where, what's making things worse, what's making things better, et cetera. So it's compelling enough that people have come from all over the world to do clinical trials on some of this information and that you can now get into the literature and read about lactase dehydrogenase as your best metabolic and mitochondrial health marker and whether cancer is progressing or not. And folks with CRPs that are elevated have higher incidence of drug resistance and have a poorer prognosis. And it's, you know, it's definitely a a, a worse outcome with people who have elevated CRPs going into treatment. Like those studies have been out there that had nothing to do with me. So again, all of my information was based on evidence informed. And so we're patchworking it together in a database that makes it very actionable and reproducible and scalable in a way that this becomes standard of care for everybody. That's but, my long But you can, you can agree with me that until it is published and undergoes exactly. peer review, right. because right. again, I mean, in all fairness, yeah. other yeah. set of eyes take a look at the data and the information and try to understand what is being reported, collected, yes. outcomes and so on, undergoes rigorous peer review scientific yes. process. Yeah. It remains speculation. Can you agree on it that? A hundred percent. And so what I'd also like to hear your thoughts on is who will, who will fund this? Well, it's not, it's not an issue of, of, I think if there's an actual hypothesis that, yeah. um, that, that projects that a particular intervention might help patients live longer, I think we are study it where patients are randomized to either this intervention or no intervention. And then these patients need to and be followed. And that's where we get in trouble is as long as we have a moment in that intervention where when we start to see very early on that the patients in the studied arm um, are doing much better than those not, we need to get those other patients scooched over quickly. Well, and that's- but, but, but you, you, can, you can do that. You can do that right, exactly. in, the, you, in the design of the study, you can have exactly. a particular, I mean, there's a lot of ma- studies that's, where yeah. you design the study in a way where you do interim analyses, right? Yeah. I mean, oftentimes yeah. you, there's a lot of, that's why you do the statistics and so on. But, but exactly. I think, you know, for me, if we are going to recommend any kind of an intervention, yeah. Um, it is really that we really hypothesize and tell people, if you do this, you're going to live longer. Right. The level of evidence really should be strong. Yeah, um, it is. I want to, I want to, I want to just ask you a quick question. Um, uh, the, when you do this thing, do you communicate with the oncologist back and forth? Is there back and forth and uh, you pick up the phone and you talk to about this? Yeah. So the first probably 20 years of my life and my practice, I literally reached out wrote letters, sent research articles, sent all the data backing my decision-making process, showing here's what your patient was going through. This is what they're dealing with now. This is what we're doing. These are the interventions we're using that are helping them respond better to your therapies. Do you have questions? Do you want to talk about it? Silence. Shadi, silence. Not, no one wanted to hear anything. No one. And then it started happening as these patients started having a collective experience and they started to talk to each other and they started to come in from all over the world and they started to be on these social media platforms. They then started requesting their physicians consult with me on their behalf or that their physicians run these particular tests that I wanted run or that they read these review articles or these recommended, you know, research, you know, look into these research trials and whatnot we started to get a little bit more interest at that time because it was patient driven. When I was trying to make it happen, no one was interested because of those initials behind my name. Ironically now in the last five years, 
the people most interested in having conversations with me, the people most interested in having patient consultations, the, the people that are even most interested in running my methodology on themselves and their own loved ones are standard of care oncologists. And so I don't hype up anything. They, I never say I treat cancer. I don't treat cancer. I treat the terrain. I never say what I cure anything. And what, what does the terrain mean? The terrain is what's is what is the micro environment. Is the um, extra extracellular matrix? Is the mm. you know the the environment that, that the tumor is sitting within? Sure. We focused for the last seventy five years on the tumor, and we haven't moved very far. And so when we start to focus on the micro you know the micro environment around the tumor, that's when we can start to really see some amazing synergies and some amazing differences where we can make our conventional therapies work better. Our cytotoxic tumor reducting, reducing treatments work even better with less side effects and better um, progressive free survival and better overall survival rates while we're helping that patient's quality of life improve as well. And so those are the things that my attention is on, is on what's around the tumor. I don't treat the tumor per se. That's never been my focus. And so what I'm doing is I always tell the doctors, and I think that's where I dismantle the defensiveness when they allow the space for us to have a conversation is they realize I'm literally there to try to help them have a better outcome with their patient. And I'm trying to help the patient to have a better outcome for themselves. And so they start to realize it's not an us and them, it's a bridge. Does, my entire, yes. Yeah, does insurance pay for the testing that you do or to the- A lot of it. A lot of it does. So, you know, the, a lot of the tests we run are very standard of care. They're just not very common. Like it, most doctors, it's weird. I mean, you probably remember this about 15 years ago, the lactase dehydrogenase was part of our CMP or part of our comprehensive metabolic panel, but somewhere along the way, we dropped that test. We also dropped GGT, mag, uh, magnesium levels and uric acid levels. Those tests are so critical to knowing how our patient's terrain is doing. The extracellular matrix is doing. So I have to order those now on top of, and I will tell you, it's ironic how many doctors, when I order an LDH, they order an LDL because they don't even know what an LDH is, which is frightening. The entire generation or two of doctors never learned about that, given that that's probably the most critical marker that we could run on any of our patients in general, but cancer in particular, and especially it is the tumor marker for blood cancers and melanomas and multiple myelomas. And so it's ironic to me that I've been at this for almost 30 years and in probably a thousand patients that fit those blood cancer categories or the melanoma or the multiple myeloma, I've probably seen an LDH run maybe on one hand. Um, just pretty, 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 that, that's pretty strange statistic. I mean, I, I ran LDH on everybody I saw Thank with lymphoma. God. Well, with lymphoma, but again, it doesn't really tell me much except just the tumor activity and the tumor bulk. Yeah. I think uh, it's very unusual that you would do an intervention or yeah. something different just because of the LDH level. You have to look at the whole picture, yeah. right? Well, that's why I run with the other trifecta, you know, those other two, plus the CDC, the CMP, the vitamin D3, the insulin, the A1C, the C-peptide, uh, ferritin levels, fibrinogen activity. Those are my base camp. And then depending on if a patient is stage three or four, I'll also get a base camp of TGF beta, of VEGF serum or plasma of... Um, MMP9, I run some of these other uh, markers that show uh, sort of tumor proliferation activity. We can also run a galactin-3. These are things that we really can tell how aggressive the cancer is being. The other thing I request when patients come in is if they didn't have it run routinely when they got their first biopsy, when a patient's trying to determine if they want to do standard of care, 
I'm like, because you do, I get, so in the beginning of my years of practice, people came to me just to help with the side effects of standard of care. That's where I focus my attention, probably 95% of the patients. Over the last few years, I have more people come to me saying, I don't want to do standard of care. And so what I'm doing with them is saying, well, let's just see how realistic that is because we can know. So if they have an elevated KI-67 on their biopsy, so anything above 20, 25%, that means we have a fast proliferating cancer cell process. And if we have a fast proliferating cancer cell process, there's not a heck of a lot outside of standard of care that this is where standard care shines. Like this is when you want a hit, a cytotoxic hit. So radiation, chemotherapy, targeted therapies, surgery, to debulk that and slow that process and buy us some time so that I can circle around in the terrain and support the whole organism so that what debulking therapies were done hold, right? But if, when I have patients who come to me who are like, oh, I had stage three breast cancer and I decided to go it alone, just alternatively, that's just as crazy as those patients who come in and blast the crap out of themselves with standard of care without any supportive therapy simultaneously. And so I'm always the person I'm like, I'm, I'm a Libra by birth. <laughs> right. But I'm also that in life is that I believe that there is the best of both worlds to be evaluated and to be utilized with every patient every time. So I think a lot of people hear the word naturopathic medicine or naturopathic doctor and assume I'm going to be against standard of care. I'm the person who now teaches physicians all over the world how to use off-label drugs and repurpose drugs to treat cancer metabolic pathways. Like this is what's hilarious to me is, and I'm the person who teaches doctors how to use liquid blood biopsies and how to use proteonomics and how to use, because this is how I function. This is where my brain goes. I love that stuff. And so it comes across that in some ways I come across even more conventional than most of my, con my conventional oncologists that I work with. And so I want everyone to be able to know that there are the best of both worlds out there. And because I do so much baseline testing and evaluating every month during the patient's ongoing treatment process, we're able to tell if and when a therapy is successful or not successful as far as are we making a dent? And that's whether they're doing standard of care, integrative care, or a combination of the two, right? And so that's where we can change. If I have a patient who's really strongly willed of like no radiation, nothing whatsoever. And I'm like, but you have a high KI 67 score and you have all these other issues going on. And you have some drivers here that make me concerned that you can't, that you probably should bring on some standard of care. If they opt not to, despite my recommendations, we make an agreement that if you see something not improving within the next month to six weeks, we have to change course or I'm not going to work with you because that has to be safe for them and frankly for me. And so we're meeting that place um, really head on. And so we're not making guesses. And that's why we're so committed to building this database, because exactly what you said, Shadi, is of, of we need the data to back this. We know what it looks like clinically, but until I can show the rest of the world what this looks like. And until the doctors that I've worked with and trained and they work with these patients can show the rest of the world, what this looks like, we're not going to get very far. And well, so I'm committed to that with you. And the other thing we're building is a nonprofit, a residential nonprofit, um, integrative oncology hospital and research Institute. And all of our funding is going into paying for the research that needs to happen to exactly give the credibility to these therapies that we see clinically and anecdotally working, but we need to back it. So it becomes part of standard of care and not the integrative or the alternative considerations. So that's, that's the long game. 
I really appreciate you spending time with us. I think there was a lot that we covered, believe it or not. We've been going for about 75 minutes. And uh, I think that uh, I really appreciate you spending time and uh, talking about a, a tough topic. And, um, and uh, I think there's probably more to discuss that we couldn't cover in just one hour of a podcast. But I, I do believe it's a, it's a topic that patients and families do ask about. And my goal with this podcast is to shine more light on a topic, albeit controversial. We both agree on that. Definitely. I think it's important to educate and get people to know. So Dr. Nisha Winters, thank you so much for coming on Healthcare Unfiltered. Honey, thank you so much. And if anybody has follow-up questions or a topic that comes up from our discussion, I'd be happy to get in and just hone in on those specifics as we cover we'll bring you back. We need, we need to bring you back on a panel. Are you ready for this? I would love it. Let's do it. All right. We're going to do it. All right. We're going to do this panel. All right. Thank you so much, Misha. All the best to you and yours. Take care. All right, folks. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate your support. If you are a loyal listener, a supporter, do not forget to send me a direct message on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan so I can send you the amazing, famous Healthcare Unfiltered t-shirt. Do not forget to subscribe, rate, review, and refer your friends and colleagues to the show. You can watch all of these episodes on my YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. You can follow me on Twitter and visit my website, chadinabhan.com. Before I leave you, I'm going to leave you with a saying by Lao Tzu, a philosopher. The journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. Until next time, take care.